only one marsupial found in North America, north of Mexico. We often think that there's a word for everything. Coming up on Word Matters, on staycations and North America's marsupials. I'm Emily Brewster, and Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. On each episode, Merriam-Webster editors Amon Shea, Peter Sokolowski, and I explore some aspect of the English language from the dictionary's vantage point. You've finished your last email, you've set your out-of-office reply, and you're ready to take some well-deserved time away from your inbox. And what better place to jet off to than your couch? Here's Peter Sokolowski with a portmanteau for our times. I think we often think that there's a word for everything. That's probably not true, but it's easy to feel like there's a word for everything. And it turns out there are often words that are pairings in which one of the words is much more frequently used than its parallel pair or its opposite. One example I can think of is the word ambidextrous. And ambidextrous means having equal facility with both hands. But in the Latin, ambi means both. Dextra means right. So it's both your right hand. Yeah, and the implication being most people were right-handed so that you have the facility of your right hand. There's the word ambisinistrous. It means on the left side. Ambisinister means left-handed or clumsy in the use of both hands. So if ambidextrous means right. you have skill or skillful use of both hands, and ambisinistrous means you're clumsy with both hands. It's funny that etymologically that means left and dextrous means right. Yes. You know. So it's a very rare word. It's a word that's not in a Merriam-Webster dictionary anymore. It was in our second unabridged dictionary, the edition of 1934, which was a very big comprehensive encyclopedic dictionary that had lots of words that are very rare, including this one. These words are kind of mirror images of each other, and that's sort of fascinating all by itself. And in that sense, maybe there is a word for everything. But one other pair like this is the word hibernate, which I think is commonly understood to mean resting for the winter, for the period of the winter, usually used for bears. It's a word that children know, right? Young children know the word hibernate because they learn about animals going into hibernation during winter. during the winter. And also it's a word that we use figuratively. I was hibernating last month. I didn't go out. I didn't socialize. It's a word that has a kind of rich life. But there is a parallel kind of mirror term to hibernate, which is estivate. And it's the summer equivalent to the word hibernate. So instead of resting through the winter with lower metabolism the way animals do, There is also estivate. Some animals estivate and they sleep through the warmer months. Now, that is also a word that has kind of a figurative life because if you estivate on Nantucket, for example, that might just simply mean that you're spending the summer there, that you are summering there. We do have the verb winter and summer. So he wintered in the Rockies and he summered on the coast. And summer seems like a kind of a fancy word. But estivate is a great way to kind of Latinize it and make it seem even more formal or more funny. Yeah. No, estivate is definitely a formal sounding word, right? It makes me think about the episode we did a few episodes back where we were talking about science terms that have settled into a non-technical use. And hibernate has definitely done that. And estivate has some use, but it's not in common use. No. So you have to be a word nerd already, kind of, to use it. And it comes from the Latin word meaning summer, basically. Interesting. I think using estivate is showing off a little bit. Yes, totally. And that's what a lot of these transparently Latin words are. 
There is a similar one related to hibernate, which is parhemate, which we don't define, but uh, the OED has. And it was the only place I've seen it is in Henry Cockrum's Dictionary of 1623, and it's defined as to winter at a place. So it's the winter sense of estivate, because it doesn't necessarily mean sleep at a place. And he has a synonym, which is hiemate, H-I-E-M-A-T-E, which is related to hiemel, wintry or snowy. And hiemate has a little more use throughout the 19th and 18th century. But I think it does have more of the connotation of spending time at a place rather than just sleeping through the season. Right, right. Right. When you're hibernating or estivating as a biological creature, you're not really paying much attention to what's going on. Right. Now, these terms, of course, make me think about some other terms for spending the summer months. The word staycation. Oh, right is a term that's been thrown around a lot lately. And during the time of COVID-19, it has actually, it hasn't developed a new meaning, but it has more often used in a slightly different way than it was traditionally or before COVID-19. Staycation, we define this word as a vacation spent at home or nearby. That was the definition before COVID-19, but it's really during COVID-19 that people were doing their staycations at home and not necessarily because they wanted to. But isn't there a slight variant or even drift of this term, meaning not leaving the country because travel is difficult or illegal? And I think that is a way that staycation is being used now. Maybe this is more in Britain, but I seem to have seen this on Twitter that people are saying, that's not what staycation means. (laughs) You're already getting a little bit of an argument, which means there's something new about this usage. But our definition actually covers that sense because it says a vacation spent at home or nearby. Or nearby, yeah, yeah. Although I guess, you know, nearby, it gives you wiggle room there, but sure. That nuance is a little bit new to me. It does seem that the original meaning of staycation was domestic as in terms of the domus, the house, and is kind of expanded now to domestic in terms of domestic (laughs) travel, the country. Yes. Now, Emin, you're the dating specialist among us. And do you know when staycation was entered in our dictionary, we entered it with a 2005 date? Uh, I think it's 1944 is the current earliest known use of staycation. Yeah. Do you know Um, what it is? Yes. There is a date from the Cincinnati Inquirer from the 18th of July, 1944, in which there are four red, white, and blue reminders for July, the second of which is take a staycation instead of a vacation, though they spell it vacation this year. Trains and buses are crowded. Gasoline and tires must still be conserved. So that's interesting. It was found in the context of wartime surplus. Yeah. I mean, not surplus, wartime. Right. They were trying to not use raw materials. Now, I think it's really interesting that this list of red, white, and blue reminders, it wasn't in an editorial. It was part of an ad for Felsenbrau Supreme Beer. Once I learned that, it suddenly made sense to me that staycation was brought to us by marketing people. Right? It seems like, <laughs> yeah. oh, okay. So conserve right. gasoline, not beer. If you go back and you look at World War II publications, a lot of, whether it's Ladies Home Journal, Saturday Evening Post, if you look at advertisements, it was not at all uncommon to see ads saying, please don't buy our product, the military needs it, kind of this hmm. self-abnegating tone. Or one of my unfortunate favorites was one where there were jello gelatin ads of all these things that you could make for dinner by basically adding scraps of rationed food to gelatin. Like, you know, you take the leftover things of your ham, you take the leftover greens or whatever, the ham hocks, and you throw it together in a gelatin mold with our brand of gelatin, and voila, you have an instant meal. 
And so you get a lot of these rationing kind of advertisements during the Second World War, and presumably during other wars. I think you're right. It's fascinating that this one led to the coining of a word. It sounds terrible, by the way. From, yes, for it the sounds meal. really disgusting. <laughs> it really does. But you can see how it would have a real presence on a plate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the draw is clear. A more recent coinage, it's a sister to staycation, has not yet become fully established. There was a buzz about this word in like 2009. It may fade off into the oblivion and maybe I should not mention it, but I'm going to mention it anyway. <laughs> and that word is bleasure, or you could pronounce it bleisure, mm -hmm. B-L-E-I-S-U-R-E. -E. So it's a blend of business and leisure. When it was first used, it was being associated with the Great Recession, and I think the earliest example that I had found of it in preliminary research was in 2007. There was a hotel press release referring to a leisure trip, a business traveler who was tacking on leisure time after the business part of the trip had ended. So your company flies you somewhere for a conference and you stay for a few more days on your own dime. Is it also used for fashion, leisure wear? Yes, like clothes yes. you could wear to the office and then That's right. off to the beach. And I had forgotten about that. Yes. I really haven't looked at the recent usage, but I feel like this word has fallen off my radar. I have not been coming across it. I also have not been seeking it out. It has a lot working against it. Why do you say that? Well, you know, the same way that we always like to say that words with K in them are funny. Words that begin with blah are not immediately striking. That's my first guess would be that the blah is really working against it. Yeah. There's another aspect of its pronunciation that always sticks out to me. And that was when I say it, I feel like I have to say pleasure and leisure. In British English, they pronounce L-E-I-S-U-R-E -E as leisure. And in U.S. English, we pronounce it as leisure. And pleasure sounds like something that one might enjoy. Leisure <laughs> really doesn't. Right? Like, leisure sounds like I'm bleary-eyed, I'm miserable, I really want to be in my own bed. I don't know. There's something unpleasant is happening. And pleasure reminds rhymes with pleasure. Right. So maybe the Brits can take pleasure and run with it. Who knows? Coronacation was a word oh, that was right. coming up in summer of, of 2020. Course. I don't know that I have heard it so much this summer. Coronacation being a cheap vacation that you take during the pandemic, or it also was being used to refer to the forced vacation of someone who's been laid uh, right. off. Right. Right? right. You have to go on a coronacation. Or coronacation being the just forced circumstances of not being able to do anything fun. Sure. One of the things that's interesting about this, though, is that a lot of these sound kind of absurd, right? And it's very tempting to think that some of the coinages that come up are unlikely to last or anything. What I love is that we get words that come from, say, the flu, like you've got a certain kind of flu. And the flu itself has this wonderfully kind of improbable etymology. Flu obviously comes from influenza, and influenza comes from the Italian word, which literally meant influence, which comes from the medieval Latin influentia, which was coming from the belief that epidemics were due to the influence of the stars. So we have the influence of the stars in medieval Latin going to influence in, in Italian, going to influenza in the middle of the 18th century in the United States, going to like early 20th century flu. And the word has changed so much. At any stage, somebody could have said, yeah, you know what? That variation is just not going to take. That's just totally <laughs> ridiculous. No one's going to be saying that in five years. And yet it's stuck around. Yeah, here we are saying it still. That's why they call it a living language. No one can predict the way it will grow. But if it doesn't grow, it dies. So the word, like maybe bleasure, may not be uttered after this podcast and it will vanish <laughs> from the language. But if a word is used frequently and by a lot of people, then 
it will grow. And that means it'll almost certainly change the way we've already seen staycation evolve a little bit. Well, and staycation is just so useful. Right. So something about it, because that kind of mashup word sometimes bothers me. We used to have a feature on the website called the Open Dictionary, and I was the administrator for a lot of years for the Open Dictionary. There were submissions from the public of new words, their nephew coined or, you know, family terms or whatever. That was the idea, at least. What I discovered was everyone's idea of a new word was some form of portmanteau, was some form of mashup word. And one advantage for success is that it's transparent, is that you understand that word the moment it's uttered, even if you've never heard it before, like Friendsgiving is another good example. And those are two words I'm sure they popped up in the Open Dictionary quite a lot. And a lot of those kinds of mashup words are fun. Frenemy. Frenemy is another good example. But a lot of them are fun, but won't catch on. These are both. They really did catch on. A really interesting thing to me about those kinds of words, which are also referred to as blends, Mm -hmm. is that this is a relatively new way of coining. The earliest blends date back to the 16th century, but it really was not a very productive method for coining new words until the 19th century, Mm -hmm. which is when we got smog and brunch, motel. And now... I talk to classes of kids sometimes, and sometimes I'll ask the kids before I meet with them, everybody come up with a word and a definition for the word, and then we'll talk about how dictionaries are made and that sort of thing. And so often, 90% of the words that the kids in the class come up with for their coinages are blends of some kind. It makes sense. One of the things you realize, okay, a word that we've never heard before in a combination of letters we've never heard before is really hard to retain. And I remember it sort of reminds me of... There was a Monty Python routine where they spoke what sounded like idiomatic English, but it was all perfect nonsense. It was absolute gibberish. But John Cleese has said that that was the hardest thing. They had to write it out and memorize it because our brains are so hardwired to making sense, to starting a word and finishing it. They took the first part of many words and the second part of other words, put them together, and it sounds like English, but it isn't. It turns out it's really hard for us because language is so innate and so dependent upon meaning that it's really hard to create language that has no meaning. It's a long way around to saying that it makes sense to me that kids would grab at parts that carry meaning to make a new word. There's a great song that was from 1972 by the Italian singer Adriano Celentano, which was a fake English song. The story that I heard, which may be somewhat apocryphal, was that he kind of bet some people in, in Italy that he could make any song, as long as it sounded like it was English, it didn't have to make sense, people would love it. And so he created an entire song of words that sound English, but then you pay closer attention and you just realize these are all gibberish. It sounds great. But when you start paying attention, you feel like the world is turned upside down because you're so sure that this is an English song and then it just has nothing to do with our actual language. <laughs> listening to Word Matters. I'm Emily Brewster. We'll be back after the break with Possum and Opossum. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E 
Byte.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm Ammon Shea. Do you have a question about the origin, history, or meaning of a word? Email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. I'm Peter Sokolowski. Join me every day for The Word of the Day, a brief look at the history and definition of one word, available at merriam-webster.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more podcasts from New England Public Media, visit the NEPM Podcast Hub at nepm.org. In much of the United States, including pretty much everywhere east of the Rocky Mountains and along the West Coast, there is a creature known by two names, opossum and possum. It's the same creature, so which name is right? I'll do my best to lay out the facts. There is only one marsupial found in North America, north of Mexico. It Hmm. is a white, small creature with lots of little teeth, and it has opposable thumbs on its hind feet. It is often found rummaging around near my recycling area (laughs) at my house. Do you all know the creature I'm referring to? It is the tick-eating creature. Yes, it's fabulously good at eating ticks. But what do you call it? I'm trying to get you to say it. I call it possum. Okay. Yeah, possum. P-O-S-S-U-M. You spell it that way? Yeah, P-O-S-S-U-M. What about you, Peter? I think I'd spell it with an O, with a silent O. Initial silent O. Yeah, I do not. Are you categorically against the silent O? I reject the O in all (laughs) its works. I do, in fact, eschew the O. Interesting. In technical context, the creature that we're talking about is more properly known as the Virginia opossum, Mm -hmm. Virginia possum. You can say either one. Scientists will necessarily spell it with the O, opossum. But that O is sometimes silent. So you can spell it opossum and pronounce it possum. Both words date to the very early 17th century, and this is first currently known evidence. The spelling with the O, our current earliest evidence for it is 1610, and without the O, it's 1613. They're basically the same age. The word comes from Virginia Algonquin. Algonquin is a family of languages spoken by indigenous people. It's a huge category of languages. It was spoken in what is current-day Labrador, Canada, all the way south to the Carolinas and to the Great Plains, a very large family of languages. But in Virginia Algonquin, it meant basically like white animal. Hmm. It's so weird that you can have a silent O on a word. I can't think of another one, not initial. That you can spell it one way. You can spell it O-P-O-S-S-U-M and pronounce it possum. But that is the case. In general speech and writing, in non-scientific contexts, it's way more commonly written the way that Ammon says it Mm -hmm. and writes it. And always, if you're talking about the phrase like play possum, definitely it's not play opossum. You can't play opossum, I guess. (laughs) This story is confused even more by the fact that there is another marsupial mammal. There is a chiefly arboreal group of mammals in Australasia. So in Australia, Tasmania, New Guinea, that whole area. And those creatures are more technically referred to as phalangers, which Mm. makes me think of philanderer. Mm -hmm. It's spelled P-H-A-L-A-N-G-E-R. Of fingers? Having fingers? Is that what it means? They've got those thumbs. Yeah. Well, thumbs is kind of a big advantage, isn't it? Opposable thumbs on your hind feet is amazing. Yeah. So a possum would beat a dog in tennis. (laughs) Do you think? Phalanger comes from the same source as phalanx, which means battle line digital bone 
or literally log. Yeah, digital bone is a digital thing bone. That, Interesting.、Yeah. Okay, but in the possum opossum wars, there are some、mm. people who say that the Australian marsupials are the only ones that should be properly referred to as possums, and that the creature in our backyards is only properly called an opossum, except、mm. that you can pronounce it without the o. <laughs> That makes as much sense as anything else. I know, right? It's such a strange. Which is to say, none、thing. at all. As far as what Merriam-Webster actually does, we put the full definition for the American creature under O P O S S U M, and we put the full definition for the Australasian creatures under P O S S U M. But both entries, of course, acknowledge that both words are used for all those different creatures, creatures of both those regions. And we make it clear that you don't have to pronounce that O in O P O S S U M. So, are there really no other words that we can think of that start with a silent O? I really can't think of any. Yeah, that's a strange one. And how did it happen? This competition of these two terms in the 1610s, it could have easily been a transcription error. In other words, that somebody heard it. A certain way, and then wrote it down. And of course, there were no monolingual dictionaries at that time. There wasn't an easily accessible standard. And also, this would have been kind of a new term. So maybe they were just transcribing the sound. They certainly were. And、yeah. the Virginia Algonquin word is actually lost. You know, etymologists、oh. have pieced together what that word looked like,、yeah. but we don't actually have printed amazing? evidence. Even of- just three, four hundred years ago, a language that didn't have a written form is a language that we don't have evidence for. It shows you exactly how lexicography works. It's so dependent upon that written record. Well, we do have evidence for the words that eventually led to this word that mm-hmm, is unattested,、mm-hmm. but that we believe existed. It's like the Proto-Indo-European、yes. terms that we assume had to exist in order for a development to come from it, but we don't have the evidence of that term itself. I feel like there must have been a conversation among a group of scientists at some point where somebody said, "Okay, you can still call it possum, but you have to spell it with the O." <laughs> And they were all like,、uh, was, "Okay." You think this was a compromise somewhere <laughs> along the way? I mean, they are known for their compromises, aren't they? Sure, I like that theory. That makes more sense than most. But the name marsupial comes from the word that means pouch in Latin. Marsupium means pouch. So maybe they put the O in in the pouch. <laughs> Let us know what you think about word matters. Review us wherever you get your podcasts, or email us at. Wordmatters at m-w.com. You can also visit us at nepm.org. And for the word of the day and all your general dictionary needs, visit merriam-webster.com. Our theme music is by Tobias Voigt. Artwork by Annie Jacobson. Word Matters is produced by Adam Maid and John Vosey. For Peter Sokolowski and Amon Shea, I'm Emily Brewster. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media.